Hi, everybody. How are you? So uh, a couple of years ago, I had the privilege of doing something that we get to do as pastors on a regular basis, which was uh, I had the privilege of officiating the wedding of a couple of friends of mine. I got to do that yesterday, actually. It was a really beautiful day. I had this outdoor wedding. But a couple of years ago, I officiated the wedding of some friends of mine. We were just getting, actually, we weren't quite as good of friends then as we are now. We were just getting to know each other and kind of feel out each other's sense of humor and all of that. And so uh, they decided to kind of take a stab and see if they knew me as well as I thought they did. So they, when they went on their honeymoon, uh, they bought a t-shirt for me and that they brought back with them. And, and this is what it looks like. If you can't read that, it says, I found Jesus. He was behind the couch. Um, now, some of you are chuckling and then others of you are like, I don't know, that's not funny at all. You're like my wife, like Casey, Bible nerd humor is only funny to some people. It reminds me of my favorite scene in Forrest Gump where Lieutenant Dan, the ever bitter Lieutenant Dan, is shouting in his apartment. And he's saying, all these people keep asking me, have you found Jesus? Have you found Jesus? And he looks at Forrest and he says, listen to me, Gump, have you found Jesus? And Forrest answers in the only way that he knows how to and he says, well, I didn't know he was missing. Every religion... Every religion under the sun is built on one specific premise, the search for God, the search for meaning, for purpose, whether you want to call it a higher power or being one with the universe or being one with your chakra or centering your chi, whatever you want to call it, all religions, all things about God are based on that, the pursuit of higher purpose. Now for me, I have this core foundational belief that that life, that purpose is found in the purpose, person of Jesus Christ. That's my core and foundational belief because I've seen it and I've felt it and I've lived it and I've touched it. But the reality is this pursuit of God leads us to a relationship with him. And once we get into this relationship, we make this commitment, we make this pledge, suddenly there's this odd question sort of hanging out in the atmosphere. Well, now that we've found God, what do we do with him? Once we have completed that search to find God, what do we do? We go, well, all right, well, I wonder if the game's on yet. I'm going to clean out the garage now that I've found God and got that checked off the list. Honestly, this pursuit, this finding of Jesus is an amazing thing, but the reality is then we have another choice to make, which is you can hang out after this experience of letting God take over your life and just wait for heaven, I suppose. But most of us, that's not good enough because there's more life to be lived, isn't there? There are relationships we've got to deal with. There are conflicts we've got to fight through. There are injustices in the world that we want to take on, head on, and destroy. So it's not enough for us to just have some wonderful religious experience. That's the beginning. Now we become learners and apprentices to Jesus. We find out what life was supposed to actually look like. It's not just this moment of religious conversion. Now it's a life that goes along with it. And I believe we find that in Jesus Christ. So how do we do that? Well, in this series, we've been talking about the marks of people who follow Jesus, the tattoos that you'd expect for followers of Jesus to wear. And today, the tattoo we're dealing with is a crown. So people who wear the crown tattoo are people who hang out with the king, people who hang out with the king, who spend time with the king, because scripture calls Jesus Christ. That's not his last name. His middle initial is not H either. They cause Jesus the Christ, the word Christ in the Bible is from the Greek word Christos, and Christos means king. So every time you read that phrase in the Bible, Jesus Christ, it basically is saying King Jesus, Lord Jesus, ruler Jesus, he is the king. 
And you know what kings do. They fight for their people. They protect their people. They give them laws and decrees that help them to live life to the fullest. Most of them. There are some bad kings in history, but Jesus is a good king, thankfully. And he fights for us. And so when we hang out with this king who wants the best for his people, this king who wants good for his people, good things happen. We change. We're transformed because, and if you're a parent, I want you to write this down because this may be the only time you've ever heard your child or any child tell you this. Our parents were right. Go ahead, take that. That's yours for today. Our parents were right. Who we hang out with changes us. The kind of company we keep changes us. And so when we start thinking about this king, this tattoo, the reality is that we were made and built and designed at the fabric of our being to hang out with God. If you start reading the story of the Bible, what you notice is from the beginning, there are all these moments where we see that we were designed to be with him. In Genesis, God walked around in the garden with his people, hanging out with them. In Exodus, he goes into Egypt and drags his people out, kicking and screaming in some ways, gets them into the wilderness so that they could build a place where they could be together. In Leviticus, he teaches them how to build a temple, a tabernacle, where God will live and they can be with him. This whole story is about people being with God and God being with them. Because that's the only way that true and good and deep life ever happens. And Jesus himself understood this. Even in the mission that he had, even if who he was, Jesus understood this. In Luke chapter 5, it says, Jesus often went to quiet places and prayed. Ask yourself this question He's Jesus. What does he need to pray for? Can't he do all that stuff on his own, just like water to wine, fishes and loaves, walk on the water, saving people, healing people, all that stuff? What does he have to ask for? Well, Jesus understood one very clear thing. If I don't re-engage with my king, my father, I can't do anything because I don't know how to do it on my own. He was dependent on God to figure out what's the next move in this story? What's the next chapter looks like? What should my agenda be as the person that you have sent to do your work? Because it's all about us swapping out our agenda for God's. Romans 12 puts it this way, Therefore, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will, or you could say agenda, is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. When we hang out with the king, when we wear the crown tattoo, what we find out is that God's agenda is actually better than ours. That God is not only good and great, but he's also smart. And he knows what's around the corner. And he knows what we need better than we do. So the passage we've been dealing with in this series is from Acts chapter 2. And just to kind of put you in a position of what's going on here, the disciples have just watched their meaning and purpose for life, Jesus Christ, be killed by crucifixion and buried. And then he rose from the dead again and visited with them for a while, and then he ascended into heaven. So their brains are like scrambled eggs at this point. Their whole reason for being just died and rose again and then disappeared. So now they're thinking, well, that's fantastic, but what are we supposed to do? And so they're scared and they're frightened. Maybe you can resonate with that. Sometimes in life we, we stare down the week that is to come and we're frightened. We're scared. We're a little nervous about the decisions we're going to have to make and the things we're going to need to do. And we don't know what to do next. And so they gather together and they huddle in this room and God's spirit comes on them like crazy. These tongues of fire, I mean, it's like a Steven Spielberg movie if you can see it in your head. These tongues of fire descend on them. They start speaking in other languages, telling this miraculous story of Jesus and God bringing all creation back to himself. And 3,000 people become followers of Jesus that day. 
I'm expecting that uh, this morning, just in case you're wondering. And then we get this description, and this description says, this is what we think it looks like to hang out with the king, with King Jesus. This is what it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. What they said was they focused themselves, they devoted themselves. This word, devoted themselves, in the Greek is actually from one word, and it just means they made it their full-time job. 40 hours a week with overtime, they devoted their whole selves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking the bread, and to prayer. Why? Because they knew that's where life came from. And they knew this early, early on. Back in John chapter 6, all of Jesus' disciples and followers are starting to fall away one after another. And Jesus looks at his disciples who are left and he says to them, you do not want to leave too, Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Today, we have a lot of different ways that we can order and motivate and direct our own lives. There are a lot of different sources that want to tell us how to be healthy and wealthy and wise, how to be successful, how to handle conflict and all those certain things, but there are only ways of life and they're limited. And the reason we know that they're limited is because they keep showing up. You'd only need one if it really did work. And yet people are starved for purpose, starved for hope and meaning. We're starved for it rather than filled with significance and stuffed with meaning. So the reality is it just doesn't work that way. Peter says, where else are we going to go? A Google search for purpose and meaning is not going to help us at this point. Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life, life that doesn't fade away with age or time. So the disciples figured out is if they wanted to know how to live truly and deeply and beautifully, they needed to hang out with the one person who was the source of it, King Jesus. So what does that look like for us today? Well, last week in Tim's message, he talked about two of these four in this passage in Acts 2, 42. I want to cover the other two. He talked about fellowship and breaking of bread. If you didn't get to see the tribes talk last week, I'd say go back and watch it. It's fantastic. But I want to talk about the apostles' teaching and prayer. So to start out with, the, the, the Acts community, these guys, these followers of Jesus, started out with the apostles' teaching because what they knew was Jesus brought the whole story together. He took the Old Testament and he brought it into the present. He said, everything that God has been doing up to this point is now coming to pass in me. And because you follow me, now you get to be the next chapter of this story. And because we follow him, we get to be the next chapter of that story. And it's a story that all fits together. When my daughter first started telling us stories, they all kind of rambled. You know, at four years old, she's telling us a story that begins with kids like coloring pictures and by the end, somebody's riding a dragon and there are fireworks and there are all kinds of like crazy things going on. It's, the Bible sometimes, when we think about it, seems like it fits together that way. There are all these random things that happen, but it's all one big story that goes on from beginning to end and now we get to find our meaning and purpose as a part of it. That's why we're doing the story for 31 weeks is to show us so that we can all come together on how this whole thing fits together. Now, I'm encouraging you to jump in, and here are a couple ways that you can jump into the story when we start in September. One is, you've got to get this story Bible. 
It has pieces, and it shows how all the pieces fit together. We have Story Central, which is set up out in the foyer. Before you leave today, stop by and grab one of these so you can read through it with us. And also, the best way to learn this story is to read it with other people. And so if you've never been involved in a life group, a small group, if, you never, if you're thinking maybe you'd like to host some people over at your house, you've got some people who you think are, you know, sane enough that you want to invite them over, neighbors, friends, whatever, I'd invite you to fill out this insert that was in your bulletin and start a group and say, let's get together and figure out how all this story fits together. Or maybe your family. If you just want to get your kids together, there's kids' materials, there's all kinds of stuff. Now, I know some of you are not readers. I get that. There is actually an audio version of the story out there that you can pick up. But I know some of you wives are also thinking about your husbands who are not readers and who are really not excited to get involved with that. Well, we have a thing for you. We've worked really hard. We've created a marketing campaign for the story just for guys. So this is what it actually looks like. Bacon just makes everything better, doesn't it? Everybody's got an opinion about the Bible and what it should be used for, and that's mostly because we've seen it used to beat people up in the past. Whether it's in the media or whether on TV, we've seen the Bible used for a lot of hideous means. This church in Kansas, Westboro Baptist Church, has this whole program of going to places and carrying signs that say God hates... Well, actually, at this point, they've pretty much said God hates everyone but them. So as long as you're not a part of their church, God hates you. So let's just agree to that, and then we'll keep moving on so we don't have to worry about it anymore. But we've seen these guys on the corner with the bullhorns screaming about God hates this, and God condemns you, and God does that. My wife actually had a street preacher condemn her for wearing pants, because the Bible's against women wearing pants. And I'm like, don't tangle with me on this, my friend. It's not going to end well for you. Actually, don't tangle with her on that either. It's not going to end well for you. And so we hear all these things, and we hear all these horrible things that apparently God wants to do, and in our hearts we go, well, that's not right. God's not like that. God wouldn't hate someone. But I have to ask a devil's advocate question here. How do you know that's not who God is? See, we can make it up in our heads that that's what we think God is. We can go by our emotions that that's who we think God is. But the reality is the primary way we know who God is and isn't is what he has told us about himself. So if we aren't engaged in this, how do we know who God really is? And more than that, how do we know who we're supposed to be if we don't engage with this? This is what the king is teaching us about his story. It says that every part, this is in 2 Timothy, every part of scripture is God-breathed and useful one way or another, showing us the truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live in God's way. Through the word we are put together and shaped up for the tasks God has for us. This word here, I love this word. It's so powerful, so tasty. This word, theopanoustos, God-breathed. It means that God inhaled and exhaled into it and made it alive. It's the same word that's used at the very beginning of the Bible when God creates man, Adam. He breathes into him. He gives him life by breathing air into his nostrils. What God did is he breathed into this and made it alive. It's a living and active thing, like a sword. It cuts down, gets through the heart of the matter, gets right to the center of things. And it begins to teach us. It has breath in it. It jumps into our lives, into our business, so to speak. And it starts to teach us things. It teaches us who we're supposed to be. It teaches us that there's a better vision for our lives than we could possibly ever have. And then it begins rebuking us. It begins saying, there's a better vision, and this is why it isn't coming true. 
These are some of the things that are going on in your life right now that just don't need to be there. And then it begins correcting us, begins turning our minds and our hearts and our heads away from the things that we're doing that are just destructive. And then it begins training us, building us up and strengthening us for the life that we were always meant to have. Now I know some people are like, it's an old book, a bunch of different languages, a bunch of people die, there's a lot of sex and violence and all that stuff in it. I don't want to base my life on that. I'd rather just figure it out on my own. Cool. But I have to tell you, there are generations of people who have found out that that just doesn't work. Because at the end of the day, if I'm determining my own course, the success of it is based on how good I am at navigating the waters. And i got to tell you, I'm a bad captain of my own ship. I crash into icebergs all the time. So let somebody else drive. Let the story of the king begin to change us. Brian Tome, who's a pastor in Cincinnati, said, God didn't give you the Bible to make you feel good about yourself. He gave you the Bible to change you into who you were supposed to be. And the way that that happens is in an equation. Now, I, first of all, I hate math. So if I'm talking math, it means it's got to be important, all right? An equation that a friend of ours named Carl George gave us, and this is what it looks like. He said, Scripture equals conviction equals character. When we get involved with the story of the king and he begins to point out things to us that need to be changed, that need to be rebuked and corrected, we have these convictions in us. This something here has got to change in me. And as we let God change that in us, we become who we were meant to be. Our character becomes that big and beautiful life that we were made for, designed for. We become us 2.0. We get upgraded. And that's what God has always intended for us. And the way that looks is in the way that Jesus describes it in John 15. He says, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my command, Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this, so that your joy, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Listen, reading scripture, getting involved in the apostles' teaching is not a way to get you out of God's doghouse. It's not a way to score points with them. It's not anything about that. It's simply for the fact that your joy might be complete. Because we have trouble believing this sometimes, but God actually does want the best for us. And that's part of what this story is about. So we could see the worst so that we could become the best. The best version that God has for us. Most of us live like we're a screwdriver trying to hammer in a nail. We function awkwardly. That's not the way we were built to be. That's not the way we were built to live. And that's why we get imprisoned in bad cycles and in destructive cycles is because we're operating out of the way that we were meant to function. We were meant to be close to God. We were meant to live as he asked us to live. The psalmist says it this way, I walk about in, in freedom Excuse me, because I have sought your statutes. It sounds kind of contradictory when you say, I live in freedom because I seek out your laws. But listen, God built these directions and these guidances, these things that he gives us in the story so that we might have the life that comes from living within God's boundaries. Let me give you an example of this. We talk sometimes about sex. And people get onto us because you're like, you make God sound like some sort of giant prude. Like God gets embarrassed when we talk about it. He made it. He designed it. He knows what it's all about. He's not clueless on that. And we talk about sex outside of marriage or before marriage as being wrong. And why do we talk about it that way? Because when we see in the story, when that happens, there is emotional and physical shrapnel that goes everywhere. It's not because we're super interested in your sex life. Frankly, I'm not. Okay? I don't have time for that. 
And Frey, I don't have the hard drive space to deal with that. Whatever happens there. But God is the one who wants to take this story and step in and say, I made this. I know how it functions best. And you may think I'm taking away something that's incredibly fun, which it is, because I made it and I know that it is and it's supposed to be. But what I'm doing is putting it in the right place. Because outside of a committed relationship, this is destructive. It's dangerous. He's asking us to do this because it's for our own good. It's not because God is some kind of hall monitor. And it takes a lot to understand that. And God didn't say, you figure it out. He gave us some helpful hints and helpful ways of understanding it. In John 14, he says, But the Counselor, Jesus is promising this, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Teaching and reminding is the way that God trains us for this life, this story that we're supposed to have. There's a card in your bulletin. It's a long card and it's got a crown on it. If you want to take that out right now, I want to point something out to you. Some of you may never have engaged with the Bible. You've never dealt with that story. You've never jumped in even for the first time. Well, on the back of that card, on the back of that card with the crown at the top, there are six passages from Scripture. I'm challenging you this week to take six days and work through one of these passages every day. Now, you may not get through all the verses. Maybe you can only do one or two. This is a quality activity, not a quantity activity. There are no brownie points in heaven for reading giant chapters of the Bible. But if you get into this, if you allow God to speak to you through this, massive things are going to shift for you. You're going to get taught and trained and rebuked and corrected and God is going to show you a bigger life than you could possibly ever imagine. So I'd encourage you to jump in and take that challenge. So they dedicated themselves and devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, but they also devoted themselves to prayer. Now prayer is just as much as the Bible gets a lot of different opinions and and perceptions and all that. So in order to kind of clear through that, I thought I'd start by showing you what I think is one of the greatest prayers in movie history. So take a look. So maybe that's how you feel. You just, there's this, when you bring up prayer, there's this awkwardness about it. Like, I don't know what to say. What do I say? And maybe I should quote a song from Godspell. Maybe I should do something like, I don't know what to, to put into it. But let me clear that up for a moment. What prayer is supposed to be is an honest and open conversation with God. It's bridging the world in which we live with the world in which he lives to find out what is supposed to be happening on our end as we live out this story. It's bringing those things that break our heart, those things that keep us up at night, those things that weigh us down on a daily basis to him so they can show us the way we live through them and over them and around them and underneath them. Prayer should explode from our everyday life. So it doesn't matter if you sound like Shakespeare or if you sound like Larry the Cable Guy. It doesn't matter. It's all about does prayer come from from the roots of your everyday life. There's a writer named Anne Lamott, and she has a prayer that she prays every day. The morning, she gets up and she says, help me. And in the evening, she goes to bed, she says, thank you. That is an everyday, daily kind of prayer. One that says, God, this is the reality of who I am. And I think the Bible points us toward that. Paul talks to his people in Thessalonica this way. He says, listen, pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Pray continually. That's what God is asking for. What does he mean by that? Does he mean like when you're driving, you should close your eyes and, you know, just, God, take care of me. You steer. Jesus, take the wheel. Um, Is that what it means? No, it means that we ought to understand that God is constantly within earshot. God is always listening and always welcoming us. Come and talk to me. 
Bring that stuff to me that draws you into the darkest places. Listen to me. I've got a plan to take you through this, to help you get through this moment in your life. Come and let's talk about this together. Let me tell you about the story I have written for you. And it's all about putting ourselves in the position to hear from him. We went to a baseball game a couple weekends ago. And I've been going to baseball games for 24 years. And I've never once caught a foul ball or been given a ball by one of the players. So we went to a Sox game a couple weekends ago. Some of that, maybe some of you make, that makes you mad. I don't know. Uh, so we went to this Sox game and my daughter, this is her first game. She's, you know, she's five years old. And so we go and sit in our seats. 24 years I've gone and never caught a ball. An hour we were there. She had three. <laughs> now she's much cuter than me. I understand that. But she had three balls and she actually gave one of them away because this little kid kept coming down and he never got one so she finally gave it to him. Now people were asking me, well, what's your secret? Where did, you know, how did you do that? Did they just hit it over in your direction? No, it's not that, it's this. This is where we were sitting. Players would walk up to the dugout and see that cute little Rosie's cheek face and would roll her a ball across the top of the dugout. 24 years I've been going. One hour, she beat me by three. She did share one with me, so, you know, that's good. As her dad, I, I think that's only fair. It's all about putting ourselves in the position of hearing from God, allowing ourselves that silence and that space to let God speak into our lives, to bring Him the stuff that's troubling us. The Lord's Prayer, the Our Father that some of you learned, some of you learned it because you said it when you got in trouble, but the Our Father is, starts with one very powerful thing and puts us in the position to hear from Him. It starts with, let your kingdom come and let your will be done. It switches out our agenda and we put ourselves in the position of saying, God, I'm giving up direction of my life. I want you to take it from me so that you can show me how to get through what we're going through. And the assurance we have is that the king is always there waiting to hear from us. Paul says it this way, the Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious. This passage is fantastic. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God is near. God wants you to have peace. He wants to soften your anxiety. He wants to lift the burden of living in another kingdom by bringing you into a better story. Because God is a good father. I know some of you didn't have good fathers and so this may not make sense, but God is the kind of father that likes to give good gifts. The scripture, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, which of you, if his son asked for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, would give him a snake? We call DCFS at that point. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Chances are, there are some of you in here in this room today who need some good gifts today. You need a good father to give you the gift of peace, the release from anxiety, the healing from disease, the healing from addiction, the ability to forgive, the ability to forget, the ability to move on from something that's causing bitterness that you just can't overcome. God is near, listening, come, Bring what you're struggling with to him. On that same card that I talked about earlier with the crown on the front, at the bottom, underneath the scripture readings, there are several blank lines. I want to invite you in that space to write out some things that you and God need to have a discussion about. 
knowing that he's there, knowing he's ready to listen, I want to invite you to have some discussion times with him. And maybe it'll be at the end of the service. We're going to do a different kind of reflection time at the end of the service tonight, today. But in that space, what is it that you and God need to have an honest conversation about today? So hanging with the king, wearing the crown tattoo means that we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to the scriptures, to the story that God is writing, and also to prayer, to talking honestly with him and hearing from him. So what does this look like? How does this impact our lives? There's a story told of a man named Anatoly who was a Russian Jew living in Russia and leaving Russia to go to Jerusalem for safety. And on his way out of the country, he was captured. And he was captured and forced into a Russian work camp And while he was there, everything that he had, all of his possessions, everything that he knew was stripped from him, except for one thing, a very small book that he held close to himself. And it was a copy of the Psalms. And the Psalms are part of of the Bible that's part of God's story, but it's also a book of prayers. And it's this book that sustained him during 12 years of imprisonment. He was so attached to it, he wouldn't give it up, that they actually put him in solitary confinement for 130 days because he wouldn't let go of this book. And finally, in February of 1986, with TV cameras rolling and the Russian snow falling gently outside the prison walls, his family waited for him outside the gate as he was about to be released. And as he made his way toward the prison gate, the soldiers tried one more time to take that book from him. And he wrestled with them and he struggled with them and finally he tucked it to his chest and he fell on his face in the snow. He was still inside the prison gates. And he said, I would rather not lose this than gain my freedom. Because that looks like true freedom, but to me, true freedom comes in the words of life and the prayers that are recorded in this. This is what has sustained me. This is what has kept me alive. That's what it looks like to hang out with the king, to know there's a better story being written for you and I, a bigger and bolder, more extravagant deeper, fuller story being written and all he's asking us to do is come and be a part of it. I'm going to ask the servers to get in place for communion. And It's very interesting <clears throat> to think back about this story that God has written. And I, and I don't know what you came in here with or what you came in carrying, but there's a part of the, the story of Jesus that I love And I don't know why, because it just comes out to me, especially when we're talking about communion, but it's Jesus at a moment where everything is crashing down on his shoulders. It's Jesus at a moment where the story of God is rolling downhill towards crucifixion. And he takes three of his closest friends and they go to a garden where they've been many times before. And they walk through this soft evening grass. And they smell the soil. They smell the sap from the trees and the flowers that are starting to close up for the night. And as the overgrowth grows over top of him, as he goes deeper and deeper into this garden, he asks the, the three friends to stay back. And he goes a bit further ahead and he falls down. He falls down from the weight of what is about to happen that is on his shoulders. And he says to his, his father, he says, Father, if it's possible, if it's possible, can, can we do this some other way? Is there another way for us to accomplish the same thing? And then he thinks and he says, but, 
listen, it's, it's not my agenda that I'm here for. It's, it's yours. And I don't know if you feel that way sometimes. I feel that way that there's this weight on our shoulders. The weight of a, a discussion or a conversation, the weight of a decision, the weight of a, a job that we're struggling through because we know we have to, a, a weight of a parenting crisis that we're in, a weight of a marital crisis we're in, a weight of an inner demon that we can't seem to wrestle to the ground. And we come to that moment and we fall. We fall on our knees and we look at the state of our life and we look at the outcome that we think is possible and we say, Father, is it possible that we do this any other way? And what I love about communion, this moment, that story is that because of Jesus, because he went before us, went through the grave and out the other side unscathed, God can reply in that moment and say, yes, it is possible because I'm writing a different story for you now. Because of my son, we're going to do this together. Good and beauty and truth is going to come out of this moment so give up the reins, let off the wheel. Let me guide you into the place where you're supposed to be. Let me show you the next chapter that's going to be written. Listen to my story. Talk with me about it. And we're going to go forward together. I want you to think on that as we take communion together. When we pass the trays across, there are two cups, one inside the other. Take both of them out and hold them. We're all going to take communion together. You don't have to be a part of Parkview or a member of Parkview to take communion. If you're a believer in Jesus, we welcome you to take communion with us. So let's pray together. Father, these symbols are so deep and meaningful. They're the symbols of a story that changed direction that went from death to life, from hopelessness to hope, from despair to joy. And so in this moment, as we share these elements together, we follow that line. We come to be with you, to hang out with our King, to be with you so that we might know what the next chapter is supposed to look like. So as we take these elements together, show us what's next. Give us a hunger to be with you throughout this coming week. Thank you for all that you're about to do in our hearts and minds. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.